Good morning. It is such a privilege to be here. I am so excited to see so many wonderful faces. My name is Justin Sitzma, and I'm on the pastoral staff here at Courtrights. So no matter which gospel you read from, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or in our case, the Gospel of John, the resurrection accounts are unified in their insistence that the resurrection happened on the first day of the week, the day, that being the day after the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday, so Sunday, today. Jesus, however, tended to favor talking more about the duration of time that he would be gone. He would say some kind of version of... The Son of Man must suffer many things, and on the th he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Some readers and scholars have noted that the Gospels record this fact, besides the fact that it's just, you know, um, the narrative, because it represents the turning over of a new page, the start of something new, a new era. So on this Resurrection Sunday, my desire for us is not a particularly novel idea. It's simply this. I want to share an old story and explore the ways that it makes things new. The three days of Easter weekend are a small window into our lives. Some of us are living in the perpetual hardness and grief of Good Friday. That's maybe where you find yourself this morning. Life has been full of hardships and loss, and grief and sorrow are second nature. Others of us are living in the unease of Holy Saturday, where the shock of what has happened is no longer quite so fresh, but there is a bitterness, maybe even a cynicism and a hardness that can overtake us. And others of us find ourselves in the joy of Resurrection Sunday. We're brimming with hope and radiating with joy. We're like, I don't know what those people were doing on Good Friday during their service. It was like a funeral or something. Why can't we just celebrate the joy of the resurrection? We don't have time for the sadness of Friday or the liminality or the awkward in-between of Saturday. We just want to jump straight to joy. Sometimes, though, since we're complicated humans, we find ourselves in some mixture of all three at once. In fact, this, uh, in, the, in a moment, as we read through John's account of the events of what happens, we see a few people experiencing exactly that. Sorrow, cynicism, and hope all converging together. Let's pray before we read. Living God... Today's good news is so wondrous that we can struggle to wrap our heads around it. Lord, would you give our hearts the wisdom to receive that which our heads cannot fully understand? Send your spirit to fill our whole selves with your resurrection promise. This we pray in your holy and good name. Amen. So John chapter 20. Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, that's John, the writer, 
and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight to the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he had to get that in there, also went inside. He saw and believed they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. But the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, "'Woman, why are you crying?' They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that, she, that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said again, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to them, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord.
So on Friday, after Jesus died, he was wrapped in linens and laid in a tomb. The heavy stone was rolled over the grave, which brought finality to this event that happened on Friday. In the same way that a casket being lowered into a grave brings finality to a funeral. As Allison said on Friday, it sure didn't look like saving the world. On Saturday, the Sabbath, life seemed to stand still for those who loved Jesus. You have to wonder, did any of them show up to the synagogue? Did any of them reveal themselves at all publicly? Or did did they all just cloister themselves locked away in hiding? Saturday was, I'm sure, a day of confusion, disbelief, and sadness. It sure didn't look like saving the world. On Sunday morning, though, there are so many fascinating moments in this narrative that time doesn't give us, you know, it doesn't allow us to go do a deep dive in all of them, but we get these little montages of Jesus' followers. We see our author, John, a.k.a. the other disciple, a.k.a. the one Jesus loved, and Peter, John and Peter have this little race. They race to the tomb, and John's winning the race, and he rubs it in Peter's face a couple times, etched into scripture for all of eternity. <laughs> but we also see John and Peter both in verses 8 and 9. They kind of oscillate back and forth between belief and unbelief. We also see the unique grief of Mary Magdalene, who shows up faithfully to the tomb, only to find the stone rolled away and Jesus' body gone only then to meet Jesus without even realizing it. Maybe she had her head down or maybe she didn't realize, maybe it was some kind of disbelief or perhaps because there was something new and different about Jesus, she just didn't recognize him until he said her name. We see the disciples who were fearful in this locked room and Jesus appears to them, except Thomas. And he shares this amazing experience with them of imparting the Holy Spirit to them. But Thomas, who wasn't with them, struggled to believe their reports. Even though there were 10 others that saw it, maybe more, he still would not believe until he touched with his own hands and saw with his own eyes. Each eyewitness account of the resurrection seems to hold intention, some degree of belief, and unbelief, a degree of cynicism and hope, a degree of sadness and also joy. I think that's kind of fitting though. 2,000 years later, in some way we find ourselves in a similar place. We oscillate at times between the poles of Friday and Sunday, from grief and hopelessness to experience this full, abundant resurrection life that we are promised. And I just want to say that if you are here this morning and you're not experiencing that full Resurrection Sunday reality, as we were singing some of those great songs earlier, and you just, your heart wasn't there, that's okay. You're in good company. In fact, you're in the same league as those who knew Jesus most intimately. 
But even though grief, tears, frustration, and sorrow, even through all of those things, our trajectory is still the resurrection life. Even if we struggle to get there at times, that is still the direction that we are moving as God's people. And that is the promise promise of Jesus' resurrection, that as he is raised to life again, God's people have the promise of eternal life. And this is what Jesus set out to do. This is what he promised all the way back at the beginning of his ministry. If you go back to John chapter 3, very early on, he's talking with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the same man who, uh, in John chapter 19, alongside Joseph of Arimathea, would embalm Jesus's body, wrap Jesus's body in linens with myrrh, aloe, and spices. So in John 3, chapter uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, John states Jesus's purpose and mission after this interaction with Nicodemus. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his, only, his own, one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the kind of verse that you can kind of tune out of because we've heard it so many times. It's probably, for many of us, the first Bible verse you ever memorized. Anyone else? Yeah. We see it on billboards. We see it on people's, you know, football players' eyes. <laughs> but John is giving, I don't, I don't want us to lose because of that, because of the ubiquitousness of it. I don't want us to lose what John is saying here. John is giving us a glimpse at one of the most ultimate truths that we will ever hear, that eternal and abundant life is found in Jesus. But here's the thing. Eternal life, the abundant life, the resurrection life does not begin when our heart stops beating. That life begins the moment that we call Jesus Lord. The kingdom of God is not there. The kingdom of God is here. And Jesus was saying that before his resurrection. So how much more true is that in light of his resurrection? This reality matters. Consider for a moment the modern miracle of a heart transplant. Now keep in mind, I am not a medical doctor and I see one in the room. And so just, this is not anything medical here, (laughs) but the the, the metaphor might fall apart at some point, but just hang with me for a moment. Think about what happens in a heart transplant. Someone with a healthy heart dies so that that patient can receive this new heart. The patient themselves have this heart, have their heart removed and replaced with this new heart and they have this new lease on life. It's amazing. It's a modern day miracle, truly. The very thing needed to keep the patient alive was dying and it was given to them in a new way. It's just a pure act of grace. Christ died to give us a new chance at life. We died to ourselves to receive that new life. It kind of gives new meaning to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And I've changed the pronoun to we and us so that we can kind of identify it. We 
have been crucified with Christ, and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life we now live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. What a profound shame it would be if Jesus' resurrection only made a difference in the afterlife. Now, don't get me wrong. It will still be good and wonderful. Our light and momentary affliction that we experience in this life will truly feel like nothing in light of eternity. But Jesus did not leave us hanging just to live a, a life of a mundane life of drudgery and pain while we wait for heaven. That's not the abundant life that Christ promises. We are heart transplant recipients. With a, new release, with a new lease on life. We are not going to be people who take life for granted. We are going to experience the, the new life that our great physician Jesus gave us, and we're going to experience it here and now. Amen? Amen? The resurrection is not simply good news for the future, but good news now. So again, whether you are in a season that feels more like a perpetual Good Friday or Holy Saturday, or whether you are experiencing that goodness that Sunday morning brings, the resurrection still makes a difference in the here and now, even in a world that feels increasingly broken, even in a world where things just aren't as they ought to be. Even in a world with difficult medical diagnoses and war and abuse and relational strife. The resurrection matters in the here and now, and the resurrection is making everything new. So I want to explore three facets to the resurrection life, each flowing from the one previous to it. The gift of the resurrection the posture of the resurrection, and the fruit of the resurrection. We start with the gift of the resurrection to avoid the pitfalls of turning the resurrection into something that we do rather than a grace that has been done for us. We are under the grace of the resurrection. Like that heart transplant patient, we are dead on the table without a new heart placed inside of us. It is through the resurrection that Jesus dealt with the problem of humanity's sin. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The, the gift of the resurrection doesn't just end with the forgiveness of sins, though. It's like one of those cheesy infomercials that they used to air on TV or maybe still do. I don't know. I, I don't have cable. But it's that thing where they're like, but wait, there's more. In our scripture reading, Jesus visits with his disciples and he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. But wait, there's more. Another gift. Jesus imparts the gift of the Holy Spirit. The disciples get a little foretaste of the events that will take place at Pentecost 50 days later. The power of the Holy Spirit rests upon God's people in this new and profound way to continue the work of Jesus, to do miracles in Jesus' name. 
the, res- the resurrection, the conquering and forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, all of these are grace upon grace upon grace. All of it is this incredible gift from God. All of it is not something that we can any way manifest on our own. Can we just take a moment, and we're going to do this a couple more times, but can we just take a moment to contemplate this gift? Just take a moment of silence now just to reflect on that reality. Thank you, Lord. Next, the posture of resurrection. When we receive the gifts of the resurrection, it changes the posture of our hearts and it inclines us toward the things of God. I could sum up the new posture of our hearts in two words. There's obviously a lot more, but these are two, I think, of the most important. Gratitude and humility. We can never go wrong with either of those things. Gratitude for the gifts that we've received, you know, and gratitude in general is such a gift to our souls. This is a well-agreed upon uh, fact by psychologists around the world that gratitude produces contentment in circumstances, that it allows us to stay grounded in what is true, realizing that, yeah, some parts of my life are bad, but not everything in my life is bad. Gratitude often produces generosity within us and it satisfaction with what we have. But gratitude in light of the resurrection, it helps sustain us. It helps give us perspective. It helps us to keep God in view no matter what, when we see all as grace. And then we have this posture of humility. Humility because we are, and I say this with a little bit of like trepidation, but we are cosmically insignificant, And yet God chose a path for us to know him, to be released from our sin and brokenness. Now, when I say, don't mishear me, when I I say that we are cosmically insignificant, I mean that in the the sense that um, we are not Jesus. We are not, you know, someone, I I don't know, is there anyone in this room that's going to be remembered 500 years from now? Maybe, maybe, but maybe not. There's a bit of a, a humility in, in, in admitting that, though I recognize. I don't mean that to say that we don't matter to God. Of course, we matter greatly to God. He designed us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, every one of us. But rather, it's beautiful and wonderful and humbling that we actually do matter to God. That God saw fit to not be an absentee father, a deistic God who just set the universe in motion and just said, okay. See you later. God is active and present, and he is among us. Perhaps the best way to think about the posture of the resurrection is that it produces a soft and malleable heart to be molded and shaped by God, a heart that's brimming with compassion for the hopeless, the helpless, and the hurting, a heart that loves those even those who would do harm to us. A heart that is willing to risk being hurt. I'd venture to guess that if any of you here are like me, you're probably a work, a work in progress in this area. I will confess to you all this morning that there are times when I have 
held bitterness in my heart toward those who believe and act differently than me, that I can get caught up in the culture wars and despise people in my heart. And I can almost always find a way to justify it. But it's almost always totally just arrogance and self-righteousness. And it's very humbling how the Holy Spirit uses the people that we love around us to convict us, to convict me, when my heart becomes bitter and hardened. We're works in progress, amen? amen. <laughs> the heart posture of the resurrection is that I am being made new. and Slowly but surely, I am shedding my former ways by the power of the Spirit in me. The way of the resurrection changes the posture of, of our hearts, and it's no small task. And sometimes I feel a heaviness in my heart for the broader church because I see so frequently, and I am, again, I'm guilty of this, Christians who feel it is their responsibility to be as arrogant as possible to other Christians and the rest of humanity. That is not the way of the resurrection. But God can change our hearts. Perhaps like me, this has been an area that's been especially hard or challenging for you, especially in these past couple years where the spiritual and political landscape feels so thick at times with hatred and discord. Let's take a moment again now to allow God to shape our hearts, to mold our hearts with gratitude and humility that the resurrection produces. Thank you, Lord. And lastly, the fruit of the resurrection. Actions flow out of the posture of our hearts. And so the fruit of the resurrection is the culmination of receiving the gift of the resurrection, allowing that gift to permeate the attitudes of our heart and mind, resulting in what we as Christians call good works. People of the resurrection are a people who are joining with Jesus in making all things new. That's really important. I want to say that again. People of the resurrection are a people who are joining with Jesus in making all things new. This can look like your very obvious and outward gifts of mercy and charity, you know, feeding and caring for those in need, funding good projects, supporting initiatives that are helping people to thrive in life. I'm thinking particularly and locally about organizations like Royal City Mission and Hope House and Michael House and Chalmers Center and the Guelph Food Bank and many others. Whether Jesus' name is explicitly stamped on it or not, poverty alleviation efforts are always a sign or a fruit of resurrection life. And I don't want you to doubt for a second that when God's people are present in those places, God is at work. Don't doubt it for a second. 
Just because someone isn't standing there with a Bible open, preaching at people, does not mean that spiritual transformation is not happening. Ask me how I know. I had the opportunity to companion alongside and eventually even baptize a number of folks who I met when I was in my time at Hope House. Just this past week, I was so moved to receive a call from one of them, and he became a follower of Jesus around six years ago. I had the privilege to eventually baptize him. He struggled with alcoholism for years and years and years. He has remained sober by God's grace. But he still struggles pretty hard with depression. You know, he, um, for most of the winter months, he doesn't leave his apartment. And it was a big step for him to call me. And, and he said, I don't, I don't talk to anyone. This is, a, this is a hard thing for me to do. But he called me and he said, and I just was like, just chatting with him. And he said, well, this really lightened my mood. And I said, I didn't do anything, you know? Um, he told me, he reminded me that the anniversary of his baptism was approaching and that he told me that he reads the Bible that I gave him every day. I don't even remember giving him a Bible, but I, I guess I did. <laughs> I honestly don't feel like I did very much for him. But event, evidently, God did. And I think that's the point. So don't underestimate the spiritual work that goes on where God's people are present around. This is Jesus making us spiritually new, and this is also Jesus making us physically new. He's a different man compared to what he was a few years ago, even physically. For those who know the ravages of alcoholism on someone's body, you'll know that it takes a toll, and after years of, of sobriety, it changes you. It's amazing. There are countless ways to participate in the resurrection life, both big and small. That also means looking at our surroundings and seeking God's spirit for what's needed. That's been so critical for us as a church in this season because what's needed in the United States is not what's needed here in Canada. What's needed in Singapore or Kuala Lumpur or Kiev or Vancouver or Bogota or Nairobi or Dubai, it's going to look very different from what Guelph, Ontario needs. And in our globalized world, we can and should. We, we have the ability to support lots of organizations in lots of those different places from around the globe. But there is also work to be done right here in our neighborhood as we seek to live out our mission of becoming trusted neighbors. Would you consider, you personally and us as a church, would we consider what it looks like to bring resurrection to our city? Perhaps it looks like helping food grow that will nourish thousands of people as we've been doing for the past few years. Or charging less than market value for your rental apartment or property. Or making blankets for high school graduates. Or sending meals to the sick and the hurting. Or supporting a struggling single parent. Or paying for someone who's been living with trauma to get therapy or supporting causes that creates a more charitable and equitable world, or any countless number of ways God might be calling you. The more that we as followers of Jesus inhabit these spaces, the more we will see this new resurrection life wherever we go. Because resurrection life is all around us. We're not creating it in and of ourselves. We're simply stewarding and fostering it in a world that needs this reality more than ever. So would you take this last moment 
and consider how God might be calling you to use your gifts in a way that would bring new life, resurrection life into our world. Thank you, Lord. Christ is risen physically and bodily. Though the scars of his crucifixion remain, they are now just visual reminders of the work of the cross. Jesus is conquering of sin and death. May this be a hope to all of those whose lives are maybe right now feeling like a perpetual Good Friday or Holy Saturday. God is not content to leave you in that place. God is not content to leave us with sickness and death and poverty and relational strife. That is not resurrection. Whether in this life or the life to come, we will experience that new life. Whatever our circumstances this morning, I pray that the resurrection infuses our souls I pray that God brings healing and life and wholeness where there has been none. I pray that God forms our hearts and good works to fulfill this mission of resurrection life. I pray, Jesus, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth and in our hearts as in heaven. Jesus says in Revelation 21, I am making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He is risen.